0: Hello and welcome to episode 11 of Not Reserving Judgment, a podcast about the latest intrigues, triumphs and outrages in Canadian constitutional law. I'm Josh DeHaas, counsel with the Canadian Constitution Foundation.
1: I'm Joanna Barron, Executive Director of the Canadian Constitution Foundation. And I'm Christine Van Gein, the CCF's Litigation
2: Director.
0: In today's episode, we'll talk about whether the right to free expression protects university students from facing consequences for their horrible opinions.
2: We'll share our bad legal takes of the week where we take a lighthearted look at some legal opinions
1: that didn't quite land. We'll tell you about a Saskatchewan cardiology clinic that's leaving the public Medicare system.
0: But first, let's talk about an incident in Calgary where two men were ticketed, apparently for having a conversation that someone didn't like on a train. Christine, (laughs) what do we know about that?
2: Look, uh, I'm a civil libertarian, but if I was, you know, ruling the world with an iron fist, I would make it an execution offense to play loud music on your phone on the train. Like, this is one of my (laughs) pet peeves. These people annoy me so much. but you know, I live in the real world. I do believe in our fundamental freedoms. And this case is some real Soviet era uh, expletive. It is crazy. So what happened is two men have been charged under the Calgary transit bylaw for allegedly making an unknown passenger uncomfortable with their conversation. They are being charged under what seems to be the you should be quiet on the train bylaw. Look, Calgary also has this street harassment bylaw where you can't go up to people and say offensive things. And I think that there's a lot of problems with that particular bylaw, but that's not even the one that's been used here. This is a a bylaw that prohibits you from interfering with the comfort of another transit user. And they have been, they're scheduled to appear in court in late November. They're represented by The legal charity, the Democracy Fund. And what happened is basically these two individuals were having a private conversation on the C train um, and they were traveling to this million child march and the train car was nearly empty, but it seems like the conversation was overheard and reported. And the men were detained when they got off the train. One of them was handcuffed while police confirmed his identity. And they were both issued tickets and summons to court. Um, So this isn't the street harassment law. There's that similar street harassment law in Waterloo that only applies to municipal property. But the Calgary one applies everywhere, um, including sidewalks. But this this isn't even that bylaw. This is about quiet enjoyment of the train. And as I said, look, I got really annoyed by people who are noisy on the train, people who are obnoxious and play their dumb games with the volume on. It drives me nuts. No one wants to hear it. Turn off your stupid phone. But... This, like I don't I understand, talk-
1: Christine. Aren't you like yourself listening to Joe Rogan and have the outside world locked up? <laughs> like that's the trick. I I don't relate to this at all because I have noise canceling earbuds on anytime I'm on the train. Do whatever you want. I don't care yeah. as long as you, you don't know- flash me, which d- does happen. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I think the world would actually benefit if I took my AirPods out and they could all listen to my Joe Rogan or maybe mm-hmm. play not reserving judgment on full volume and everyone could benefit society uh, from bold. hearing it. <laughs> <laughs> but look, it, it does annoy me. Like I, even when I'm having lunch and I'm not listening to my AirPods, but I'm having lunch with a friend and then someone's playing their stupid there's stupid video games on their phone like are you are you oh, having like, lunch
1: with your friend at like uh, north york high school <laughs> apparently
2: apparently like it, i don't understand these people who play their games but look Fair. it annoys me but i'm not going to call the cops on you and this guy was co- handcuffed for a private conversation and this whole thing is like so absurd when you think about it because You know, I have friends who live in Calgary, they take the C train and one of them said to me, you know, I guess this is what it takes to actually get arrested on Calgary public transit as opposed to, you know, smoking meth on the train or starting fires on the train, which also happens. Yes, it's apparently private conversations that someone eavesdrops on. That is that's the real problem on the C train. Um, Listening to private conversations and reporting it, you know, I have to say, I don't know what the conversation they had was maybe it was really awful stuff but the thing is they they weren't charged under the the harassment bylaw they they weren't charged under the criminal code for something like incitement for a hate crime for uttering threats they were charged under the being noisy on a train bylaw and i just think that this is like, so creepy, the idea that someone could be listening to you on the train, listening to your private conversation. And then when you get off, the police are going to arrest you. Like this is like what happened in the Soviet Union, although I think they had to actually pay their informants. These Canadians are doing it for free. So when we're done this podcast, I'm going to email the lawyer representing these guys because this is so crazy i want to i want to learn more about what's happening if there's anything that we can do josh your reaction to this this c train story
0: yeah first of all i'm totally with you on music on the subway and uh noisy people it, it drives me insane even if you have your headphones in sometimes it's so loud it's like uh It's a bit much. I I went to Switzerland last summer and when I got to the airport there, I realized everybody is like completely silent in airports and on trains. And I was like, this is my (laughs) paradise. This is my country. I want to move here now. Um, But yeah, municipalities have no business policing speech like this. Like we're seeing this more and more municipalities coming up with these dumb bylaws where they think they can you know make everybody play nice with each other by you know ticketing them or uh issuing trespass notices for saying things that are perceived to be offensive and i think you mentioned this or maybe you didn't but waterloo region has this new bylaw and it's totally crazy like it purports to outlaw harassment and then it defines harassment as objectionable objectionable or unwelcome conduct comment bullying or actions that could reasonably cause offense or humiliation, and this is to me obviously unconstitutional because the 2014 case Watcott, which uh, we were involved in as interveners, found that you need to reach the extremely high level of detestation or vilification before you can, you know, uh, limit speech on the basis of it being hateful. So um, this is clearly contrary to the Charter and. I watched the council meeting where this bylaw was formulated, and it was pretty clear that a lot of city councillors were you know, trying hard to be cognizant of charter rights, but at the same time, they didn't really know anything about the charters. So um, I think <laughs> municipalities need to be more careful before they write blatantly unconstitutional laws. Um, Joetta, you already told us you're, you're not as uh, upset about... The noise on the subway, but what do you think of this uh, this incident in Calgary?
1: Yeah, well, look, people just have to remember that there's no right not to be offended in public. For me, the most annoying thing is when a kid, group of high school kids get on the subway, That then I'm genuinely just like, I, I don't like teenagers. That's the that worst. <laughs> but in any event, there's no right. I realize these kids have a right to be very obnoxious and their horm- hormones will settle down soon. But I think that it's this combination of these vague bylaws which have lowered the threshold um, from actual hate speech into these far more subjective, hazy standards, as well as people's heightened sensitivities where you get into a situation which is like kind of like the Stasi, right? Like you have a conversation that triggers someone or that offends someone and you combine that, these heightened sensitivities with these lax legal standards and you get this insane stuff. Um, And so, yes, just to be clear, you do not have a right not to be offended, particularly not in public spaces. And I think your friend's comment about fentanyl is hilarious because, yes, (laughs) I was in downtown Calgary this year and it is a rough place. Like many Canadian downtowns, just to be clear, I'm not calling out Calgary. Um, But anyways, speaking of... Uh, students and offensive speech. Um, Josh, I know that you would like to talk about the free speech rights of students and students supporting terrorism and genocide. What about that?
0: Well, as, as listeners probably know, there have been a very large number of student groups across North America, you know, openly taking the side of Hamas after its attack on Israeli civilians. I do want to focus on just a couple incidents here in Toronto, though, so first, I'll talk about um, this egregious statement from a few student groups here at uh, York University, which is home to Osgoode Hall Law School, where Christine and I both went. For those who haven't been following, these student groups issued a joint statement referring to Israel as so-called Israel, and they endorsed the, the terror attacks that you know murdered babies and took 212 people hostage as a, quote, resistance. Um, York University. Yeah, it's 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 awful. York University President Rhonda Lenton, who I personally think has done a good job trying to fight back at anti-Semitism at York, at least when I was there. Others apparently disagree because there's now a a lawsuit against the university for for not protecting students against anti-Semitism. But anyway, uh, Lenton has announced that York might withdraw recognition of these student unions and They're also demanding that these student unions, these student union leaders resign. So, you know, this is actually a big threat to these nasty student union leaders because, for those who don't know, student union leaders tend to draw significant paychecks from the millions of dollars that students are forced to pay them when they enroll in university. And, you know, they're supposed to provide services, but in actual fact, they spend most of their days, you know, cosplaying as Che Guevara or. know planning black lives matter protests so you know taking away their paychecks could actually hit them where it hurts i also want to talk about this even more egregious open letter from students at toronto metropolitan university law school and i know what you're thinking what what the hell is tmu law school this is like the new law school at ryerson university or the former ryerson university before it was cancelled by its students and this letter which is signed by as many as 74 future lawyers, explicitly endorses the Hamas terror attack, stating, we stand in solidarity with all forms of Palestinian resistance and efforts towards liberation. Israel is not a country. We assert that Hamas' attack was a direct result of Israel's systemic campaign to eradicate Palestinians, and Israel is responsible for all loss of life. should go without saying that this is you know anti-jewish hateful frankly genocidal historically illiterate and it's showing support for a terrorist group and that should probably lead to some consequences against these students now tmu has responded really tepidly so far with no explicit promises of discipline although they did say you know we unequivocally condemn the sentiments of anti-semitism and that all tmu community members are expected to act in accordance with the student code of conduct so it's good that they recognized it for what it is anti-semitism but it would also be nice be nice to know if they actually plan to do something about it uh benai Brith, a jewish group is calling for these students to be expelled and you know some prominent people in the legal community are saying they think the law society should require them to face good character hearings to decide whether they should become lawyers and my initial feeling on that is that, you know, expulsion, expulsion or attempting to block them from the legal profession is probably going too far because, you know, as evil as these words are, a lot of these people are quite quite young and maybe a little bit ignorant, so I'm not sure cancelling them is, is the right move. That said, whatever my opinion, there are a bunch of like interesting legal and policy questions here about what... Uh, people you know budding lawyers and students can can't say on campus and I don't purport to have all the answers but I'll say a few things so first of all it's uh, it's not quite settled law but it appears that public universities because they're mostly autonomous and not like directly implementing a government program aren't required to uphold students rights to free expression in other words there's probably nothing un- unconstitutional about your withdrawing recognition of these student groups and you know potentially disciplining under disciplining them under their student code of conduct that said i do think their student code of conduct goes way too far because it includes discipline for all kinds of off campus speech and speech that has nothing to do with the function of functioning of the university itself and second i wanted to say you know these calls that the law society investigate the tmu students do implicate their freedom of expression and that's because regulators like the lso are bound by the charter they're regulating on behalf of government and so they shouldn't be getting involved in policing you know lawful but awful off-duty speech so in my view self-regulators are meant to protect the public from things like shoddy legal work fraud sexual assault not to police professionals about what they can and can't say and we've recently seen how these codes of conduct get weaponized like we saw the Ontario College of Psychologists is going after Dr. Jordan Peterson the BC College of Nurses is going after a woman named Amy Ham for her viewpoints on gender and I looked into this yesterday some of the things she said that she's being investigated for are I love JK Rowling so that's just that's just absurd um and I think the government can respond to this, too, without implicating freedom of speech. You know, it would be a big problem if the government was saying universities, you can't say this, you can't say that. But governments fund a huge portion of universities uh, in Ontario. It's about a third, I think, And federally, the federal government provides a huge amount of um you know, use university research funding, a lot of which is just used by sort of dilettantes wasting their lives and taxpayers dollars on useless PhDs. So I think it would be reasonable perhaps to, you know, for governments to decide they don't want to fund certain university programs. And um, people might not know this or recall this, but the Ford government here in Ontario actually refused to provide TMU law school with any funding originally and i think to this day they only provide funding in the form of allowing people to take out uh, student loans and uh, now we can sort of see why the government might have thought their money was you know better spent um elsewhere so you know long story short i don't think universities or self-regulators should be policing off-campus speech but i see no issue with york's plan to stop recognizing these student union parasites and I could even get on board with the government, you know, reallocating taxpayer funding away from schools that increasingly look like, you know, Marxist or or terrorist indoctrination camps. So (laughs) those are my thoughts um, for what they're worth. Joanna, what do you think?
1: Well, I just want to step back and just have a little bit of a different reflection. And by the way, I don't know if you guys saw uh, George Washington University in the D.C. area, a student group lit up a building with glory to the martyrs, which makes it pretty clear that you're talking about supporting terrorism. You don't usually see the likes of that. And so, look, I agree with your analysis, but I I just have noticed something in the recent weeks um, that I think is worth calling out. So there's been a real shift in how people talk about when the Israeli so-called occupation and apartheid begun. So You know, I have lived in Israel, I've traveled extensively through the West Bank, and I largely do agree that, yes, the West Bank has been, quote-unquote, occupied since 1967, and of course, the Gaza was occupied from between 1967 and 2005. It was actually uh, occupied by Egypt and Jordan before that, by the way, Um, and having traveled through the West Bank, you know, it's complicated, but yes, there are military checkpoints, there's the presence of IDF, and the, the Arab residents there do not have the same freedoms or democratic rights as Israelis, including Israeli Arabs, by the way. And yes, the Jews there are preferentially treated and protected. However, in the last few weeks, and I don't know if you guys have noticed this as well, the assertion has shifted. So it's being openly claimed in the mainstream that the occupation has been going on for 75 years. Yeah, same Um, that claim. In other words, that's implying Israel's entire existence is illegitimate. And of course, there have always been people who believed this, um, but most were always careful, at least in public comments, to not go this far to deny Israel's right to exist. Most people acknowledge that you know, after the Holocaust, um, it was rightful for Jews to look around and say, hey, throughout the, the since the dawn of time, every society we've lived in has tried to turn around and kill us. So maybe we should have a national homeland. Um, and as far as I understand, that was commonly publicly accepted. So now, why am I bringing this up now? And we're going to touch on this later. This is clearly some type of Overton window has shifted um, in the wake of a brutal attack on Israel, the most brutal in its history. And I can only explain this by the fact that anti-Semitism is Emerging more brazenly into the open, it's become more mainstream. Um, And so, no, I don't think the solution to this is to um, expel students or prevent them from being lawyers. Um, There is a huge problem here that um, that we should attend to. There's so much history that people aren't aware of that I'm not going to get into. The fact that the Palestinians were offered many, many, you know, many strong offers, including one offer in 2000. In 2000, um, at the Camp David negotiations, that a Saudi prince told Yasser Arafat, "If you're dumb enough to walk away from this deal, which included billions of dollars, full, you know, control of the West Bank and Gaza, I will never speak to you again." He walked away and started the second intifada. So there's just a lot of history that I really think people are unaware of. Um, And so I think, you know, people need to, we need to educate that and we need to counter these, you know, false assertions. People don't remember um, why the state of Israel was created in the first place. Um, So Christine, I don't know if you have any thoughts um, about that. Yeah, just what I'd add
2: is I I share the reticence among all of you to, you know, name and shame these individual students. Um, I'm very wary of of the whole notion of cancel culture i i i actually don't think that the po- the position of conservatives in their criticism of cancel culture has ever been that there are no employment consequences for being openly racist right conservatives have never taken that position um i think the position is more about kind of less a f- less kind of provocative speech you know saying That there are two sexes, saying that gender is not a social construct or that sex is real, biology is real, things like that. And I think I think that the hypocrisy here actually lays with with the left, who I think these students who signed this these letters would would not think twice about canceling a student. For saying those things, for saying there are two sexes, I would like a my a, a women only bathroom, something like that. But here they're they're is all, they're anti Semitic. Hamas apologizing, terrorism celebrating statements. They're like, oh, you're a hypocrite if you say there should be any employment consequences for me saying these horrible, horrible things. No employment consequences. And I think the the issue here is you know people saying. Uh, you know, law firms will never hire these people. I mean, they might they might not that might be a consequence. Uh, On the same hand, though, I I am very wary of like individually naming them because I think we all when we were students said all kinds of provocative and strange things. And if I were to go back in a time machine and look at myself when I was 20, uh, I would probably be deeply embarrassed. So I don't I want to give space for students to learn and grow and 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 understand the kind of historical context and cultural context that joanna has just explained but the way i'm inclined to see this is a really strong indictment of the state of higher education as a whole which has allowed these noxious and disgusting ideas to fester and grow and this is this has permeated universities for years this kind of pro um this this concept that violent insurrection against a government like israel's is totally warranted and the the the, i mean it's got it's gone to an extreme now but this has been festering for a very long time and i think what we need is education at universities to teach students the entire political historical and social context around the state
1: of israel so that's that's my take Right. Well, let's switch tacks and talk about one of our other favorite things to talk about, um, which we haven't really, which is kind of shocking, our failing healthcare system and some possible signs of life. Um, So in Saskatchewan, it was reported this week in the Globe and Mail that a cardiology clinic in Moose Jaw is the first since 1962 to go private. Um, and the owner, and I think leads physician at the clinic explained that Saskatchewan reimburses cardiologists for screenings and other procedures at about half the rate of uh, Manitoba or Alberta. And so the clinic owner looked at this business model, and he either could close his clinic, um, take patients in volume, um, so just stack as many patients as possible and, you know, provide a much poorer quality of care, um, or go private. Um, so what they decided to do is go fully private, charge their patients directly for their consultations. The Consultation rate is $350. Some patients, I guess, through their job or otherwise, or even there are some federal government employees that have third-party health insurance, um, can help subsidize the costs. And of course, If patients in the community can't afford to pay, the clinic will refer them to another clinic where of course they may have to wait um, or whatnot. So they're not completely abandoning those who can't wait. Um, so there are already comparable clinics in BC, Quebec. I'm actually in Quebec right now. And you really notice there are a number of just walk-in private clinics. And it's always clearly advertised, Plibe, um, very different from Toronto and Alberta. And in fact, Ontario, where we live, is the only province where this is banned, where doctors can't just directly uh, drop out of the public system like this. And so look, there's like a very obvious underlying reason for this. Our public health care system is not based on either the actual needs of patients, um, the requirements of doctors, nor the willingness for that matter of patients to pay. These are dynamic factors in some circumstances. I mean, it would, it would depend on the circumstances, but in some circumstances, I can see how I would easily be willing to pay $350 if I was in urgent need of, car- of a cardiological assessment. So it's not based on those factors, even though there's a clear sort of like supply and demand mechanism. This is the only area of our economy where we have removed the rationale from those factors. And it's based just on government ba- budgets, which ration, you know, where for whatever reason some bean counter in Saskatchewan said we can afford to pay 1785. per per heart health assessment, which I think is uh, what they were paying in this particular clinic, not a living wage, even in Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan. Um, And I just, to emphasize, this is actually perfectly compatible with the Federal Canada Health Act, which requires um, that all provinces implement a public health system that is uh, universal and free at the point of service. It doesn't say anything about complementary systems that can emerge alongside that. The trouble, however, is that every province has some form of legislation that is designed to prevent the emergence of any type of private market for healthcare delivery. So uh, as is most familiar, familiar to us in BC, the Medicare Protection Act, but every province has some version of this. In BCs, um, you have to either totally choose to operate out of the private system. Um, you can't do any type of dual practice, uh, which, you know, is unworkable and uneconomic for most doctors. And of course, the CCF challenged this in our longest standing litigation, one of the biggest charter challenges in Canadian history, um, which was denied leave this year uh, by the Supreme Court of Canada. So there are many questions left unanswered. But I do think if you look at the demographics of Canada, we have an old population, boomers are our biggest part of our demographic, they're hitting their peak healthcare consumption. Uh, years now. And so you should expect to see more businesses and more clinics just determining that it's uneconomic um, for their for them to proceed. So I would say that this is a positive thing. Whether you're, you know, whether you have some high-level principled objection to private health private pay healthcare, we can acknowledge that there are some people who don't who will choose to. Access it and that will remove some of the pressures on our very overweening, uh, over constrained uh, public care system. Christine, I know you also have a lot of thoughts about this area. Um, anything you want to share? Yeah, so I'm working
2: on a book right now, an ebook that's going to be free for all of our listeners about healthcare choice and ways to improve the healthcare system. Um, Some of those include aging in your own home supports for home aging in your own home uh, ideas about how to open up the system against uh, this this government monopoly ideas about preventative health care so all kinds of cool ideas and this book is supposed to come out at the end of the year but interestingly I saw this proposal from. Nova Scotia. Nova Scotia is offering 50 prizes worth $1,000 each for the best ideas in healthcare, And these ideas need to be submitted by November 22nd. And they should be easy to implement with little to no funding. So I really do wonder if I can just send in open up the healthcare system to allow for patient choice, allow for private options for people who choose it. It does not require funding. In fact, it could save the healthcare system huge amounts of money. But for some reason, I have a suspicion that I won't be given one of those thousand dollar prizes if I submit this idea. (laughs) Josh, what do you think?
0: I think that's a great idea. I I really wish people would sort of rise up against the, the, the dumb laws that we have that prevent doctors from, opting out of the public system that's really just overwhelmed and, and not paying them very much money. Um, just this week, I noticed there was a doctor on Twitter saying, you know, maybe he's open to private care, but private care isn't the answer because doctors like him are already burnt out. And if people went to, you know, To a doctor and paid them privately that would just pile more work onto him in the public system but the thing that people always forget about this is that our governments very tightly control the number of seats in medical schools and the number of residencies that train doctors like we have an extremely low number of doctors per capita in ontario at least and probably the rest of canada compared to other countries and that's because government's purposefully limited. And there are so many Canadians that want to be doctors. They go and train in Ireland or the Caribbean or the United States, and they come back here and they can't get residencies. Um, if people were allowed to charge privately, then those people, and there were residencies for them, then we would have more doctors and there would be more health care to go around for everyone. And my strong suspicion is that the waiting lists in the public system would go down. And that's based on the fact that there are shorter lists in you know, all of these European countries that have um, mostly public, but some private uh, payment for, for medical care. So uh, that's all I have to say about that. Why don't we take a break? And when we come back, Christine, you can give us your freedom update. Hi, I'm Russell from the CCF. In case you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to our email newsletter, The Freedom Update, to get updates from me every week about our ongoing work and the legal stories in Canada that keep us interested. It's one of the best ways to stay up to date. Subscribe at the ccf.ca slash freedom update.
2: So my Freedom Update this week is about... Better- a case I've talked about on the podcast before. We have a decision in this case now. It's a bit insider baseball, as I've said on a previous episode. It's about the rules for when costs can be awarded against public interest litigants. We are usually a public interest litigant, so we're very interested in this issue. Now, the case was between Seneca and a group of students who were challenging the university vaccine mandate. And it was, as I understand it, a case where lawyers for another legal charity called the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms represented the students. And the JCCF viewed this as public interest litigation. The students lost, but costs were not ordered against the losing students. They were awarded against the JCCF. And this is strange. It's not normal to award costs against the lawyers for a party. And if it was being awarded against the JCCF as a public interest litigant, then there's specific rules about that. And those rules weren't applied in this case. And the, the this cost order was a big deal. It was $156,000. So really an existential threat to the whole notion of public interest charitable litigation like what we do. So we were concerned, obviously, because of some of the things that the lower court pointed to in deciding to order costs against the JCCF were things like they fundraised for the case and they promoted the case on their website, which basically every legal charity does, including us. So we were concerned. We formed a historic partnership with the Canadian civil liberties association and a group called democracy watch. And we intervened to make arguments about the problems in that cost award. Basically we were concerned that if that cost decision was upheld, these organizations, us, CCLA, Democracy Watch, and any legal charity, we wouldn't be able to raise funds to help with our public interest litigation that regular Canadians generally can't afford to fund themselves. And we got the decision. It was a huge victory. We've been on a bit of a winning streak lately, which has been wonderful. It was a unanimous decision by justice, written by Justice Nordheimer of the Ontario Court of Appeal. And they explained that the cost award was fundamentally flawed because the judge below failed to make any finding on whether the litigation constituted public interest litigation. And the decision confirms that where litigation's in the public interest, there are certain principles that need to be applied when considering requests for costs order against the unsuccessful party. And I think that our argument that we made it really helped the court in reaching this conclusion that the the lower court had failed to apply the test for public interest litigation. And the decision affirms really in, in very, very strong terms that public interest organizations like ours have a right to fundraise, to support cases, and we have a right to inform the public of, of our efforts, and that it's not an abusive process when we do that. These activities of fundraising and communicating about our case promote access to justice for private individuals who are trying to hold governments to account under the rule of law and challenge illegal laws. And I think that the decision has a protect is protective of public interest litigation. It clarifies that the public interest litigants like, like us may promote and fundraise to support our cases. And I'm really thrilled that we brought a, a case challenging or or not challenging intervening in the appeal of this cost award. Um, we had a diverse um, number of viewpoints in our coalition, but shared our, we shared the concern about chill that these adverse cost awards would create. So a victory for our organization. I know it's insider baseball, but I think the people who listen to this podcast probably care a lot about the organization and the kind of work that we do. Let's move on to to bad legal takes. Joanna, what's yours?
1: So my bad legal take turns out is a little bit of a joke on me. It comes from my <laughs> father, Peter Barron, who's very smart and very commonsensical. And yesterday in the family group chat, which unfortunately has been pretty grim in the last few weeks, my sister had shared a picture that she saw in her neighborhood in East York of uh, an organics trash bin um, with a bloodied Star of David on it saying free Palestine and there was some debate about how to do how to deal with this. And my dad said, Well, I purchased my garbage container. And if anyone marks it up with anything, they're committing an illegal act, not to mention a hate message. So it's public property, you're not allowed to write s h uh, swear word on public property. I think whoever did it should be charged. That will make them think before doing it again. Um, so, uh, so just to give context, there were a few of these spotted around Toronto. There was another one that I think was even worse um, that said, sorry, what did it say, Christine? So-, so
2: it was said soaked in blood. And it was a image of the Star of David covered in blood.
1: Yeah. So so look, obviously, for reasons that I spoke about a little bit earlier, I think the brazen and open anti-Semitism that has emerged is terrifying. There were also I'm sure many people saw angry crowds harassing people having brunch at Cafe Landwer, um, which is a Jewish owned business that was started in Berlin in 1920. It's actually not an Israeli business. Um, so this is happening all around. However, my opinion was that this is not hate speech. I suppose um, there's some ambiguity as to whether the star of David soaked in blood refers to um, the death of life in Gaza um, it, it, at the at the hands of the IDF or something like that. It's somewhat ambiguous, and in my opinion, hate speech is very these very specific instances. Um, it's been defined as speech that, you know, inspires intense calumny or detestation of a group. I would say it's not quite at that standard. However, it looks like the bad legal take may have been mine because it was <laughs> reported last night that the Toronto police is actually investigating this graffiti. Um, and so look, I think that there have been much more uh, concerning things said in various communities around Canada in the last few weeks. There was uh, a video of a woman saying that how Moss was totally justified. There was even, I think, a pickup truck that showed up in Mississauga with people carrying Taliban flags. Um, and we were speaking just before we started recording. That this might just be low-hanging fruit. Um, I tend to prefer to see if it's out in the open, and as I say, um, counter it with counter speech. Um, but anyways, we'd love to hear what you think. And just to be clear, we aren't actually certain that the Toronto Police is investigating this as hate speech. We just heard that they are investigating it. Um, I, Christine, sorry. I just want to say, you know,
2: I think that the the I don't think that it's as ambiguous as you might. I, I mean, the as you know. The the image was not of the Israeli flag; it was of, of the Star of David, which is unambiguously the symbol of Jewish identity. It
1: wasn't It's true. Saying, it's also on the Israeli flag, of course.
2: It is. It, it is on the flag, but they it was a choice not to make this a an image of the flag. It was an image yeah, of the Star true. of David. Uh, so, you know, I think that it the the message is unambiguously anti-Semitic. I think you would agree with that. But I I don't know how you could portray this as about Israel and that, that's always the response that you get from from these Hamas apologists is, I don't have a problem with Jews I have a problem with Israel and like to be honest I think you probably have they probably have a problem with Jews too and I don't well, I mean half of the world's
1: Jews live in Israel yeah. so that yeah this is something that's not persuasive
2: Okay, let's. I'm going to move to my bad legal take. Um, it's about a different topic. It's, you know, as usual, I got into a fight, a fight on Twitter, and this one was was probably my fault because you know I've been in a pretty foul mood, uh, and I was looking for a fight. And it's about this this stupid situation with this Ontario Member of Parliament, Sarah Jamma, who has been censured. Uh, Joanna has an op-ed coming out about it, and we've talked about this issue on the podcast, but the. The long and the short of it is that um, Jam- the NDP is entitled to kick JAMA out of caucus. The legislature is entitled to censure her. It's illegal, but it's probably a bad idea from a freedom of expression point of view um, because it creates this, you know, this sympathetic figure. But, you know. It sort of annoys me that people are losing their minds about JAMA getting this censure when these people just on a regular basis just don't give a shit about freedom of expression on any other day they only give a shit about it when it's sarah jama spouting off these like offensive uh, uh, hamas apologizing views and and terrorism justifying views and one of the ways you know that this is hypocritical is that mpp randy hillier was censured by the exact same legislature i think like a year ago or maybe two years ago, and he had made some dumb comments as well. Uh, He had called some other politician, a federal politician, a terrorist, obviously idiotic. Uh, And he was censured by the Ontario legislature. He was told to apologize. There was unanimous um, vote to order him to apologize. And there was barely any public reaction and certainly no reaction from the people who are now screaming about JAMA and her right to freedom of expression, which, of course, I agree that she does have. But legally, she can be censured, even if it's not a good idea. So there's this criminal lawyer on on Twitter who had tweeted about it. His name is Michael Sprat. And look, I actually don't have a problem with Michael Sprat. I've interviewed him on my television program. Um, but I was pretty annoyed by this, by this tweet. So he retweeted, someone said, what is cancel culture exactly? And he said, preventing an elected official from speaking in the legislature seems pretty cancel culture ish to me. And I replied, cause I'm a jerk, uh, now do Randy Hillier. Cause you know, if you care so much about JAMA, you should care so much about Hillier too, I guess. And he said, yeah, we can talk about that. But here's the thing, Christine, it is the right, the political right, who constantly and hypocritically whine about cancel culture. So I don't trust we could have an intellectually honest conversation about it. I just don't know what on earth he is talking about. I genuinely don't know why he doesn't think we could have an intellectually honest conversation. My position on freedom of expression is clear and it's consistent. And, you know, if he feels the same way about Randy Hillier that he does about JAMA, I will retract my comments and, and like I admit I went out here looking for a fight because I was in a bad mood. But we've done a podcast about JAMA. Joanna has an op-ed coming about about JAMA. We've all said that the NDP can kick her out of caucus, which is super low bar, and that they can censure her legally, but that it's a, probably a bad idea. So I don't know what, I think that he just assumes that I am not, consistent on this but i admit that i assumed that he was not consistent on it either by saying now to randy hillier maybe he is consistent but i will note that he did not reply to my tweet uh so that's my that's my little dumb drama from from yesterday uh josh what's your bad legal take this week
0: my bad legal take it goes to brigadier general jl jlg belil who is the Chaplain General of the Armed Forces. And uh, he released a new sort of woke-ified policy on, quote, spiritual reflection in public settings, which replaces the 10-year-old prayer at military ceremonies policy. And yeah, so basically prayer is now out, and we have to call it spiritual reflection. And I don't want to sound like I'm attacking a member of the military because with the current climate in government, which is pretty hostile to tradition and combined with the fact that a lot of veterans see religion as an important part of military tradition puts uh Belil in a no-win situation you know when it comes to coming up with a policy to regulate prayers at things like Remembrance Day but I do think this policy is based on a really bad legal take from government lawyers and the policy basically starts by explaining that this new policy is needed because of the Supreme Court decision in the case Mouvement uh, Laïque Québécois contre Saguenay, which is, which uh, requires a strict standard for religious neutrality according to the military. And that's true, but the policy misses the point, which is that religious neutrality is not about pushing religious beliefs out of public spaces. It's about preventing the the state from favoring one religion or set of beliefs over another the directive says that chaplains spiritual reflections remember we can't call them prayers anymore must be quote inclusive in nature and re- respectful of the spiritual diversity of canada and must ensure that attendees are reasonably able to identify with the words being uttered and that all feel included and able to participate in the reflection with a clear conscience And this is obviously an impossible task like what prayer or uh, what spiritual reflection would all people be reasonably able to identify with right like some people are monotheists some people are atheists some people are devil worshipers so you know this this directive also says chaplains should employ quote language that is mindful of gender-based analysis plus principles And for those who don't speak Ottawa, GBA plus is essentially the state's new woke religion of its own that includes principles like, you know, differential outcomes between groups automatically uh, show discrimination. And I'm not sure how that could be considered, you know, neutral or would make all feel included and able to participate in the reflection with a clear conscience. But anyway, all of this is based on a misreading of Saguenay. You know, in that case, the city council had a bylaw that allowed them to recite a Catholic prayer and make the sign of the cross at council meetings. And the SEC said, like, no, you can't do that because it favors one religion. But Sagane didn't say religious people can't pray in public unless their prayers have been, you know, sanitized in accordance with um, what this military directive is, is stating. So what it actually said is, quote, sponsorship of one religious tradition by the state is a breach. It also said if the state favors one religion at the expense of others, it imports a disparate impact. Freedom of conscience and religion guarantees that no person can be compelled to adhere directly or indirectly to a particular religion. And finally, a neutral public space does not mean the homogenization of private players in that space. In other words, Saganate doesn't prevent prayers at public events. It might mean that chaplains can't themselves lead prayer, but the state could certainly still remain neutral by allowing like private citizens to give prayers as long as they don't favor one religion over the other. So, you know, at Remembrance Day, I think they could just keep doing what they already do, which is invite faith leaders from different faiths, um, perhaps chosen by the Legion to give prayers, whether it's, you know, an imam, a rabbi, a minister, an indigenous elder, or maybe all, all four as long as they're not endorsing you know, one religion over another. So that's my bad legal take, and I think that's the end of the show. So as usual, we hope you'll rate us, review us, and subscribe. And I really, really want people to go and rate us and review us. We got a few new reviews and that's awesome. It really helps us. And if you go and review us, I promise I'll tell you about the time I was a, a subject of a complaint under York's Student Code of Conduct. It <laughs> happens a lot. Um, And just a reminder, you can support our work by subscribing to the CCF's YouTube channel, by following us on X, or by visiting our website, theccf.ca, where you can sign up for our new and improved Freedom Update newsletter. The Canadian Constitution Foundation is a non-partisan legal charity funded by your donations, so please donate on our website if you can. Thanks for listening.